You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It has been such a joy to be with y'all. Thank you so much for uh, putting up with my loud antics and my big wingspan and, you know, my movements. Uh, Y'all are so kind to let me be here. I mentioned to you right out of the gate, that fresh out of the gate, that it was a joy being with you either five or six years ago, whichever one is accurate. And it is such a joy to be back here seeing many of the, the same faces and getting to hear of God's good work among you over these past years and then getting to share with you all about God's good work uh, in my heart. Um, so thank you. It's such a joy to be sisters and partners in this glorious gospel. Several of you have shared with me how God in his kindness through the book of Micah has deeply challenged you <laughs> and has also brought comfort and encouragement as, as you've been refreshed by catching a, a renewed vision for God's glory. Do you remember on Friday night when we first gathered? That seems like a year ago, doesn't it, Dixie? But when we first gathered, uh, do you remember that I said I've got one main hope for our time together? And that that had been really dominating my prayers for you and for me and our time together. And it was this. I was asking God through his, the power of his spirit and through the, the word of Micah, to show us afresh his unrivaled splendor, his incomparable glory. I was asking God again and again that what he would do among us is set before our eyes a fresh vision of God, who he really is, not who we imagine him to be, or the God that we've tamed or domesticated over time in our own minds, but the real deal, the real living God. And I've asked him again and again that he would do that work among us. Not simply that we would see him for who he really is, though that's of course the starting point, but that we would bow in delighted worship, awestruck worship over who God is and what he's accomplished on our behalf through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I I am praying the same thing through our brief foray again into the end of of Micah this morning, that we would again set our eyes on the living God and leave changed. You know, one of the dangers of a wonderful retreat like this one is that we can come and break away from the, the normal rhythms of life and we can have a bit of a spiritual high, right? We're taken up to the heights where we behold in panoramic glory the the splendor of the living God. And then we descend to the mountain, get back to to the rhythms of everyday life, and we forget what we've seen. It's like we have a, a spiritual experience, but it doesn't leave a lasting impression. What we're after is for God and his kindness just in this little time this morning to do his work and to help us take who he is seriously such that it leaves a lasting impression. So at the end of, of our, we'll, we'll briefly unpack again the conclusion of the book of Micah and then I'm going to give us time for personal reflection and then group processing together. How does all this land on us? How are we going to freshly commit ourselves to keep setting our eyes on who God really is and to keep yielding our heart to be changed by our incomparable God? So I want us to to take seriously not just this vision of God that Micah gives us, but how this vision of God is intended to change us. 
So we'll do that in a moment. Do you recall that how the book of Micah is shaped? <laughs> that the book of Micah is shaped in its most extreme sense, in its polarities, with that rhetorical question. Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? And in chapter 1, verse 1, we see Micah's name. Who is like the Lord? And then Micah brings his vision to its culminating point in chapter 7, verse 18, with this question, who is like our God? (laughs) Pardoning iniquity, and so on and so forth. That among the many attributes of God that display his splendor, one rises to the top. One attribute surpasses them all. And that is his commitment to show mercy to his remnant. (laughs) The faithful remnant like you all who stayed all the way through Sunday. (laughs) We've said again, or we've said yesterday, that were we to imagine the book of Micah being acted out on a stage, we might imagine that the book opens with the living Lord, the, the cosmic judge, entering stage left. And you remember what he's doing? He's treading upon the high places, bringing judgment. And then as we imagine the whole book being acted out, we might imagine that the, the living Lord, the judge, exits to stage right. But what does he do right before he exits? He treads our iniquities underfoot. He's treading on the high places in judgment, and then as he exits the stage, he's treading our iniquities underfoot. What a beautiful balance we have here, a deliberate shaping mechanism that Micah uses. So here's what I want us to do. Before I read the culminating three verses of the prophecy, I want to read 1, 1 through 9 again, so that we see how this book is enclosed and bookended and is setting before us the unrivaled splendor of Almighty God. So I'll read rather quickly, pardon me, verses 1, 1 through 9, chapter 1, 1 through 9, and then I'll turn to the culminating vision. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which Micah saw concerning Samaria, that is the capital city of the north, and Jerusalem, that is the capital city of Judah. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it it not Samaria? And, And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valleys and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I, Micah, will lament and wail." I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Micah 7, verse 18. 
Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. The pardon that you and I, covenant breakers, need is the very pardon that the living God gives in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives it freely by his grace. We've seen time and time again in our unpacking of Micah, again, we haven't unpacked the whole book, but we've unpacked significant portions of it. We've seen that in our hypocrisy and in our greed, we've perverted the grace of God. We've squandered his grace. We've exploited his grace. We've taken the covenant relationship that he's given us and we've tried to turn it into a transactional one. (laughs) We've, We've tried to pretend that all he demands of us is just saying liturgies and singing songs. We've, we've sold, it's like Esau selling his birthright, right? We, we've perverted the grace of God. And yet God issues pardon for grace exploiters like me and grace exploiters like you. He mercifully pardons our transgressions. That's how he renews his covenant relationship with us, through pardon. <laughs> We've got one main point this morning, and here's what it is. Because God in Christ has decisively, once for all, pardoned your iniquity, you've got to take hold of His grace and let it change you from the inside out. Because God in Christ has fully, decisively, once for all, pardoned you, You've got to take hold of his grace. (laughs) Take hold of it. Embrace it. Cling to it. And let it change you from the inside out. We've acknowledged that a common problem among us, starting here, is that we can nod our heads in cognitive assent to the fact that we're forgiven in Christ. But we can lead our lives and think the thoughts we think and say the things we think and behave the way that we behave such that his pardon doesn't actually change us. It doesn't actually land on us. We're not actually shaped by God's mercy to us in Christ. Carl Menninger, the 20th century American psychiatrist, once said this, I could empty 75% of the beds in my psychiatric ward if I could convince my patients of this one thing. Your sins are forgiven. You and I, those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have a banner over us, forgiven, pardoned. It's a once-for-all banner. (laughs) Once-for-all banner, it is our identity, our sure, certain identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes this banner, though it stands over us, we don't live in light of it. What I want to see God do here in this session 
is convince us more and more in our hearts of Christ's decisive pardon for our sins. And actually to to open our minds, open our imaginations a bit to see what it might look like for each of us personally to live our lives in light of that reality, in light of the reality that our sins are thrown into the depths of the sea. See, Micah writes verses 18 through 20 in a way that aims to convince us. In other words, Micah knows that I need convincing. He knows that for me to hear that God has pardoned my sins and passed over my transgressions, it's going to land superficially at first. And so Micah is convincing us in these verses. Let me, let me give you three, let me highlight three ways that Micah is aiming to convince you and to convince me of the fact that God has decisively pardoned us. Here's the first way he does it. He aims to convince us of God's pardon of his remnant by using a variety of words and phrases to get at the same idea. You notice that in the passage? Look at, look at your Bibles. Look at verses 18 through 20. He uses a variety of words, this rich covenant vocabulary, and he builds his case line by line, unpacking and developing his argument. It's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like Micah's holding up a diamond and letting us look at its facets at different angles. Look at the way he's written it. Think, for example, about the different words and phrases that he's using to capture this idea of pardon. He, he puts it positively and negatively. For example, negatively, God doesn't retain anger. Think about that. God doesn't retain anger. Now, positively, we'll look at the passage. What do we see? God pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He delights in steadfast love. He again has compassion. He treads our iniquities underfoot. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. He shows faithfulness to Jacob. He shows steadfast love to Abraham. Do we see this? (laughs) The prophet is aiming to convince you. He knows that your tendency and my tendency is going to be to hold on to our trespasses, to hold on to our sins, in, in pride actually, not to relinquish our sins to the Lord and trust him that he's pardoned us. So Micah is convincing us line by line, looking at all these different facets. That's one way that we see Micah trying to convince us. Let's, let's highlight a second way that we see Micah aiming to convince us that God's pardon is full and decisive and accomplished. Here's the second way. Much of Micah's agenda is to show the ancient roots of God's pardon. In other words, God's intention, this is an everlasting intention, an everlasting purpose. He's always aimed to pardon his remnant. Let me prove it to you. The first way that we see the ancient roots of this pardon in Christ is that Micah uses language in chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, that draws on Exodus 34. (laughs) Do you remember what happened in Exodus 34? Well, actually, do you remember what happened in Exodus 32? God had just announced his intentions in Exodus 19 to his people, saying, hey, you're going to be my treasured possession. Above all the peoples in the world, you are my treasured possession. I love you and I'm going to commit to you. And here's how you commit back to me. Remember the people said, all that you say we will do. You know, they committed themselves to the Lord. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and what happens? 
they build a golden calf at the foot of the mountain while Moses is up top. (laughs) Right away, they break the covenant. Isn't that a picture of me? Isn't that a picture of you? Right away, they break the covenant. And you remember, through Exodus 32 through through 34, Moses is going back and forth with the Lord, aiming um, aiming to intercede on our behalf, on sinners' behalf. And after this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, what does God do? He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes before Moses. And here's what he says. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do we hear the similar language in Micah? Micah is actually drawing his language and his core ideas from Exodus 34 because that's how the Lord proclaimed his name right before he renewed the covenant. This is triggering for God's people recollection of their covenant-keeping God right at the start. But Moses goes further back than Mount Sinai. He takes us to the Exodus. Do you recall throughout our look in Micah, there have been several instances where Micah has used allusions and references to the Exodus. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 15, when he's exclaiming in defiant confidence what God is going to do. He says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Here, Moses is recalling what God did in the Exodus and saying, you know what God is going to do for you in the future? He's going he's to bring about a new Exodus, a greater Exodus, a greater, more lasting deliverance than you can even imagine. It's going to blow your mind. He's going to do marvelous things and perform marvelous wonders for his people in the future. It's going to be patterned after the exodus in Egypt, but it's going to be bigger than that. Do you recall that in Moses' song, it was Moses and the people in Exodus 15, after God has triumphed over Pharaoh and cast him into the sea, do you remember in Moses' song in verse 11, he says this, he says, Moses sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. We hear the resonance. Now, in the Exodus event, the first one, who was cast into the depths of the sea? Pharaoh and his army, the enemies. In the new Exodus, envisioned here, what's cast into the depths of the sea? Our sins. Do we see that? Moses is showing this has ancient roots. This is nothing new. This is not some passing trend, some contemporary thing we can't trust. This has been God's heart all along. All along when God performed wonders over Pharaoh, casting him into the sea, he knew where he was taking his people. He knew that it was merely anticipating the the new exodus that he would accomplish in the Lord Jesus Christ. God subdued Pharaoh in the Exodus, and he subdues our sins in the new Exodus. But Moses takes us back even further than the Exodus. <laughs> he takes us all the way back to Abraham. 
Now, there are a number of things that we can say. You see this, by the way, in verse 20. You will show steadfast love to Abraham. There are a number of things that are important with respect to why Moses takes us all the way back to to Abraham to show us the ancient roots of God's purposes. But one thing we can clearly say, uh, Micah is showing us that Micah is showing us that God's purposes for us to pardon our sin, they're rooted in his promise. In other words, they're rooted in God's integrity, not yours. <laughs> they're rooted in God's faithfulness, not yours. They're rooted in God's commitment to the covenant, not yours. They're rooted in God's enduring love and his persevering resolve to maintain the covenant relationship. Not yours. God's purposes in Christ are rooted in God. Not you. Thanks be to God. The third way that Micah aims to convince us of this full, decisive, once-for-all pardon is by his shift from the third person to the second person. Did you notice that? He's showing us that we must not just see God's pardon in abstraction, but we must take hold of it. Look at this in verse 19. It begins with, He will again have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah here is convincing us. Now, this is a subtle way of convincing us, but it's not lost on us, is it? That we must personally take hold of this liberation, of this deliverance, of this triumph over our sins, the greatest enemy, sin and death. We must take hold of it. We must stake our claim on it. We must live our life based on it. And Micah is leading us in that direction by moving from the third person to the second person. He's leading us in to personally appropriating the grace of Christ. It seems to me that among the many tragedies of the evangelical church in the day, many many weak spots, is that we we don't take hold of what God has given us in Christ. It's like... You know, my parents gave me a Kindle years ago. And um, I, they gave me a Kindle because I carry so many books around. And they thought, this is, this is going to be a great gift. Well, I never used it. I think I used it once in my life. I never used it because I don't like a Kindle, you know. But that, but that makes the analogy bad. But a couple <laughs> years later, I had to have spinal surgery because I blew up my back running with my laptop bag carrying so many books. I had a, I had a perfectly good Kindle. I just never used it. Now, here's the reality. So many of us aren't taking hold of what God has given us in Christ. We're not appropriating his mercy. I don't say that so that we feel judged or condemned by that. I say that to say, oh, sisters, see what a privilege it is to be forgiven, to be pardoned. Can you imagine what would happen in your life if you were to take more, a firmer grip on the fact, the reality, the once-for-all decisive truth that you're forgiven? Think about how much of our life would change, how much freedom we would experience in our mind and our heart. Think about the way our relationships would change in our interactions with one another, 
If we know that we are fully forgiven, think about how that sets us free to forgive those who have sinned against us. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you all a few brief moments in silent reflection and reflect on this question, which I'll say in a moment. And then I want to open the floor to hear if any of you would like to share what God prompts in in your heart. Here's the question I want you to consider. If I were to believe more fully that God has decisively, once for all, forgiven me in Christ, what would change about my life? If I were to believe more fully, if I were to trust that in Christ God has decisively, once for all, fully forgiven me, pardoned me, cast my sins into the depths of the sea, tread my iniquities underfoot, what would change about my life? I encourage you to think concretely and specifically. Just take a moment and personal silent reflection. Think about what would change in your life. And then we'll open the floor. Some of you have heard the Corey Ten Boom saying, she says, when God forgives us, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea and posts a sign, no fishing allowed. <laughs> Would any of you be willing to share a way that God has prompted you and encouraged you thinking about what might change in your life if you grabbed on more tightly to the mercy of Christ? I don't think I would um, trivialize and make the complicated forgiving others. Hmm. Or it would only get to the one of the things through it and work it out in my own mind. I'd like to give it more freely. Hmm. That's a wonderful comment. May we join you in that. That's great. Receiving his mercy and seeing it for what it is, it changes us to be mercy showers. Absolutely. Uh, this time last year, Fran uh, Haig was my group leader, and um, we were talking about something that was difficult <coughs> and even more difficult this year, but um, she said, Meg, I want to see you dance. Hmm. And I'm not dancing yet, but um, I am on the inside. Hmm. Um, Tim Keller has a wonderful sermon that I, I could find if somebody wants it, but he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit coming together, and they want us, they don't need us, and he talks about their dance, and he says, Jesus invites you to that dance. Hmm. That's wonderful, and recalling Moses and the people singing in Exodus 15, when we see his deliverance, the natural response, you're right, is to sing and dance in praise, in humble gratitude. And so may, may we join you in that as well, that we would be women marked by gratitude, ever-increasing gratitude as we grow in our understanding of what Christ has done. What else? What else has God prompted in our heart? Yes, sister. Hmm. Tell me, can you build on that? Hmm. 
Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That because one reason that we sit on the sidelines in evangelism is because we're terrified of our inadequacy, and yet we've got an adequate Savior in it who has an adequate message. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, sister. I think I would hear him and do. You know what I mean? I would hear what he says and I would go and do it as opposed to, well, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, is that really? Mm. Should I? That's related to what our other sister is saying, that, it's, that our obedience isn't about measuring up. Right. Because God has already granted us approval. So there's no need to measure up. Right. The standard's met. Our obedience is because we love them right. and we trust them. That's why we take them at his word. Yes, so the, when we hear something like Micah that is so difficult, and man, it cuts right to the jugular, you know? We're not sitting here wallowing in condemnation. We're so grateful that he's exposing our sin because we delight to obey him. So now we feel freshly empowered to go forth and be women who do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. Great word, Gunner. Yes, sister. <coughs> That's a great word. When I'm working with younger women and aiming to train them in word ministry, one thing that we often are intimidated by is our own inadequacy. And and yet, when we look at the Apostle Paul, uh, he actually sees his weakness as the very platform upon which God is going to exalt his mighty strength. And I love even when he's speaking uh, to his protege saying, that all may see your progress. In other words, the very fact that we're sinful and weak and people get to watch the power of God's transforming grace, that's part of the message we proclaim. That's a good word. Maybe one more. Yes, sister. Um, my golden calf looks an awful lot like myself. And <laughs> I just wonder what my life would look like if I wasn't just glorifying Sarah all day. Hmm. That's such a great word. And just like we've been talking about idolatry all along, idolatry pretends to offer us life and what it gives us is death. And at the first start, when we're engaging and indulging in self-focus, it feels like a high, doesn't it? Oh, this is kind of fun. I get to live for myself. I get a... But it ends up being a total lie and actually leading us into death. So this is an invitation, isn't it, to enjoy the liberation from ourselves. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great word. Well, sisters, as we close, let me just say I am with you in this. I will stand right here to show it. May each and every one of us keep setting our eyes on our glorious God, our incomparable God, who among his many glorious attributes shows his uniqueness predominantly in his pardon of sinners like me.
and sinners like you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to our shepherd king. In fact, I'm going to read again what Deborah wrote, read to us a moment ago. Let's hear these words from Hebrews 13 that are granted to us on account of Christ's atonement. Hear these words. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.